it's just lovely seeing kids having their eyes opened and starting to wonder and to delight and to praise God the Creator. Welcome to Season 2 of the Christian Education Podcast. My name is Paul Matthews and it's great to have you here for a brand new year. Now, although it's a brand new year, we've got the same old vision, actually. It's to grow God's kingdom through Christian education. That is what we will be endeavouring to do this year. Now, this episode is actually something a little different. I've drawn alongside the Christian Teachers Journal. Now, they've got a new edition coming out in February 2023. This episode, as well as probably the next few, will be discussions with authors from that journal, people who've contributed work to that journal. Now, just to clarify, this episode, it will stand on its own. And I've worked really hard to make sure that even if you don't have access to that journal, you'll still benefit richly from these discussions. Now, my guest today is Dr. Roger Fernando, and this man is a seasoned campaigner. He's got 40 plus years under his belt teaching science at a Christian school. I've got to tell you, through this discussion, I was able to see the discipline of science through brand new eyes. Roger talks of using science redemptively, using it to reduce suffering and bring peace. I tell you, it certainly made me wish I'd paid more attention during science class at school. Now, as always, know that Roger and I prayed for you before the start of this episode. We ask God that through this discussion, he would deepen your ability to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, Roger Fernando, thank you so much for joining me here. It's a, it's a real treat to put a face to the name. Welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, a little birdie told me before you came on that you've just retired. Would that be about right? Yeah, retired as of the 20th of December. I also got told that you've had quite a significant tenure at one school, at Mount Evelyn Christian School. How long have you been teaching there for? Uh, yeah, so 41 years, um, well, 40 years full-time. The last, uh, the last year, last year, 2022, I went down to 0.67. Um, <laughs> and then I taught one day a week in my dip ed year for half a, half a year. So add that half a year to the 0.67 and you probably got close to uh, probably got close to 41 years. I also taught in my first year science for Mountain District Christian School to enable them to get funding for their secondary students because they didn't have a science curriculum. So I wrote that curriculum and taught it in my first year of teaching. It certainly sounds like you've done a lot of educational heavy lifting over the last 40-odd years, Roger. Can you just tell me, as you reflect, and I'm sure you've been doing a lot of reflection at this point, uh, can you tell me about some of the real high points of this 40-plus year education career that you've had? All right, well, I guess my journey to Christian education began as a 16-year-old when I uh, met a young lady at <coughs> Box Hill Reformed Church, uh, who is my wife now, Jeanette. Um, and Jeanette's parents were 
part of the the Christian community that started Donvale Christian School. Well, it's now called Donvale Christian College. Um, and so Jeanette was contributing 50 cents a week towards the building fund. Uh, and I joined in that. Um, and Jeanette also started to attend the very, very earliest transforming education conferences. Um, I don't know, you know of inter- ITech, ITech conferences? Yes, yes, I went yeah. to the last one. I loved it there. So she was going, she was going to it all the way back in the day. Yeah, so I, I started to join her. They were called Transforming... What were they called, Jeanette? Focus. Focus. They were called Focus Conferences, and mostly the speakers were Doug Blomberg and Stuart Fowler uh, and some other guys you know, from the States used to come out. Um, so I got into that, and then the PhD, and uh, um, I was part of a, a group of Christians that were interested in, in looking at um, Christianity at a very kind of high tertiary level. Um, yeah, anyway, um, I guess once I started at MEX, MEX, MEX had this, well, it was a rule, I suppose, that in your second year you would, you would do ICE, uh, which is the forerunner of NICE. Um, so ICE was started... Again, I think in the late 70s, 79 maybe, it was called the Institute of Christian Education. Uh, The principal was Doug Blomberg or Dr. Doug Blomberg and Dr. Stuart Fowler were also lecturers. And there were a number of other people who came in and ran courses. Um, And that that was really wonderful because, um, I mean, it, it just opened my eyes to what it meant to teach Christianly. I was a Christian teacher, but I was a long way from what it meant to teach Christianly. Um, and mainly, so I did the lectures, and in those days the lectures were not by distance. We actually went to different campus. So on a Friday, Monday afternoon, uh, you got out of school, you drove either to Maranatha Christian School, which is in Endeavour Hills, or to Donvale, or to Mountain District Christian School, um, and that's where you had your lectures. And you had 4.30 to 6.30, 6.30 to 7, I think, was lunch, dinner, and then 7 to 9 was your second set of lectures. Wow, that's, that is strenuous. Yep, and there were no, no ice relief days. There was no promise of a little sweetener at the end. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, I mean, and obviously there were staff who who didn't like to do that. Uh, it was costly, but I've always believed that serving Jesus is costly business. Um, and yeah, but it it was really good to dialogue weekly with these guys through a journal. Um, yeah, and so my insights have been sharpened. Um, I've learned so much from Doug and Stuart. Uh, Stuart has died since, but Doug's still alive. He just lives about a couple of k away from me. But yeah, that's that's ma- massive highlight. Um, Mex Mount Evelyn Christian School has been wonderful. It's um, it's really nice to be part of a community that believes that Christian education 
is for all image bearers. It's not just for the academically gifted. All right, so we have a high number of kids with learning disabilities, um, anxiety. I'm sure lots of schools have kids with anxiety, but we have a number of kids. And yes, those kids actually bring our average ATAR down. <laughs> but, you know, we're called to uh, minister to the academically lame and poor the academically hungry. Um, so it's been really wonderful to be part of a school community that takes that seriously. I'm really impressed. And that's a way of framing it, Roger, that I actually haven't heard before. And I, I really appreciate that. I think that's going to be an insightful framework for approaching learning difficulties uh, for many mm. people. Now, I was talking to my father, Simon Matthews, um, about some of the books that I've been reading recently on Christian education. And then in preparation for my conversation with you, I was talking with him about Mount Evelyn Christian School. And I had a weird penny drop sort of moment where I'm going, mm. hang on a second, all the books on my shelf over here are written by all the guys in your staff room, including mm. you, including you've done some work in that as well. What are they putting in the water down there at Mount Evelyn that you've got so many people that committed to Christian education that there's a desire to be producing materials. It sounds like you've got a great Christian education ecosystem down there. <laughs> um, all right. I think a lot has to do with the socioeconomic status, if you like, of, of the Mex community. We're mostly, um, we're not rich people. All right. Um, I don't know what it's like in Tasmania, but in Victoria, in Melbourne, you know, we talk about the Bible Belt, um, the eastern suburbs where the wealthy live. Um, well, we're not wealthy. We're kind of middle class. There's a lot of tradesmen. Uh, the Dutch who settled in around Mount Evelyn uh, were mostly sort of builders, uh, tradesmen, farmers. Um, yeah. And and so that, that brought that rich idea that, Christian education is for all, that worship is an all-of-life uh, factor. It's not, it's not um, you know, worship is not something you do between 10 and 11 in a building. Um, so you can serve God just as much as a fisherman, as a garbage collector, as a teacher, as a doctor, you know, and, and that... That's sort of been ingrained into the community. Now, that's not to say, and we've been very blessed to have um, principals, like Stuart Miller was wonderful, Jack Mickelson was wonderful, Jack Mickelson put together No Icing on the Cake, um, Martin Hanscam came after him, uh, and now we've got Narelle Sketcher. Narelle's one of my ex, I was senior school coordinator when she joined back in 93, and, uh, you know, she's very open. She came as a daughter of a Ivanhoe Grammar girls' school uh, teacher. And that was her desire to, you know, get a couple of years under her belt and then go back into the private system. But that's the role of the Holy Spirit in, in capturing people. Now, it doesn't capture all. <laughs> I remember mm -hmm. doing ICE with a guy in my first year. And it just sort of blew his mind. 
And in the end, he resigned from the school. He said, this is undermining so much of what I believe to be true. Um, and he's gone to a, a different type of Christian school. So, yeah. And I think the fact that our principals have insisted that everybody does NICE. So you can't get out of it. And then it either works its magic or it doesn't. Well, no, I shouldn't use the word magic. Um, either people are open to the prompting of the Holy Spirit or they're not. Um, yeah. So it's an un unusual place. It certainly seems to be something that God has used not only to minister the people in Mount Evelyn, but also the community of Christian educators throughout the nation. Now, before we get into your article here, I've just got one big question for you, Roger. One of the two things, I'm focusing on two themes this year, not necessarily in our conversation now, but more broadly, I'm looking at conflict in schools this year, and I'm looking at burnout. Now, the burnout statistics would make your eyes water. There are a lot mm. of teachers who are coming into the uh, profession they, they've got great ideas, especially Christian teachers, so optimistic. They're going to you know, take the school for Christ. They're going to have powerful, meaningful interactions. They're going to teach all of Christ through all of life. However, we find that they've packed their bags and left three or four years in. And this, this happens over and over. And I thought you, as a 40-plus year teacher, mm. I, I want to get inside your head. What has, what has allowed you and helped you to maintain your motivation? over the course of your career? All right, well, it starts with an understanding of my role as a teacher. I, I, I'm of the view that teaching is part and parcel of my worship of God. My understanding is that God has gifted me uh, with abilities to communicate. He's given gifts of patience. <laughs> oh, boy, yes. Uh, it's given me a love of teenagers. I really like naughty kids. <laughs> <laughs> and some of these, well, I've got many, many ex-students who are now my friends. And, uh, you know, in my very first years, if I had kids who were challenging in the classroom, I would... I would discipline them, of course, but then during the break, I would talk to them about their life, just ask, you know, and if they were sporty, because I'm, I'm a bit sports sports nut, I'm still playing competitive hockey and cricket, and I've just retired from soccer this year, um, I, <clears throat> I would invite them, you know, to play a game of golf with me. Mm. And it's kind of really interesting. Kids, kids can't resist being loved. Um, that's the bottom line. So there's, there's that. Um, I've never felt that I've nailed being a teacher. I've never felt that I can't improve anymore. Um, it's the only job, really. I mean, if you're an a aeroplane pilot, you get to a certain level of competency and, you know, not much more to be done. But teaching is... And, you know, people have said, why have you stayed at the same school? I mean, I got asked by my first principal to become a principal after three years. But I'm not interested in being a leader. I'm a reluctant leader. Um, I, I just want to teach. And every year you get new kids. And I'm, I'm staggered by 
the challenges that new kids bring. You know, I, I, like even last year, my last year, I got kids who I thought, I've never met anyone like this. <laughs> <laughs> so that all keeps you fresh. The curriculum keeps changing. I teach senior chem and bio. So that's, that's changing and that's fine. Um, and look, God's creation from a science point of view is this unfathomable treasure chest. You know, um, you just never get to the bottom of it. And it's just lovely seeing kids being having their eyes opened and starting to wonder and to delight and to praise God the Creator. You know, those I could keep going forever, but <laughs> it, it is true over the last 10 years, a kind of... Uh, mandatory demands on teachers so like every year now i have to do a first aid course every year i have to do a child safety course or mandatory reporting course every year i have to do uh in what is it ncis or something yes the disability standards um those are really tough things um and yes and and look it's it's no longer safe anymore for a teacher um in my early years, we used to regularly invite kids to come on holidays with us. Yes, okay. Right? And with their parents' permission. That would be... I would be put on a special register if I did that now. <laughs> it's a different kettle of fish, isn't it? Even as you were talking about playing a game of golf with a student, in yep. my mind, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about a stack of paperwork that's coming up to the middle of my shin to try and get that sort of thing happening now. That doesn't mean it's not worth doing. In fact, I, th I think that's a really valuable insight. But the times have certainly changed in terms of our legislative requirements, haven't they? Indeed, indeed. Now, let's let's move on to the area, and this is really your butter zone, isn't it, Roger? Science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Now, it must have been an interesting time to be a STEM teacher over the last few years because one of the things you note is that there's actually been a renewed level of interest from our federal government and in our educational uh, areas on STEM. STEM has been receiving a huge push over the last decade, hasn't it? Indeed. So my question to you is, why do you think that is? All right, I think, um, well, we live in a society that idolises science and science is really sort of bedded down in a foundation of mathematics. Um, I mean, if you follow AFL football, you know, we, we measure the effectiveness of a player based on their statistics, mathematical statistics. And, and that's a lie because there are so many good footballers who do not, past all those tick boxes, you know, how high can they jump, standing jump, uh, how far can they kick both feet, all of those things. Because mathematics can't measure everything. It can't measure an inspirational act. It cannot measure a kind word when you when you fumble the ball. Um, you know what I mean? There are so many things that, yeah, there are so many great footballers Um that have won Brownlow medals, 
Uh, I'm thinking of Tony Lockett, the great full forward for St Kilda. You know, when he came down, uh, all the coaches dismissed him as being too big, too clumsy, too slow. Daryl Baldock, who's a Tasmanian, um, he said, no, I see something in this boy. The end is, rest is history. <laughs> um, so that's, that's one thing. Science also, um, one of my journeys has been to understand that science, again, is there's an idolatry around science. We see it as a provider of truth. So if you look at legal cases, and I can talk about many, but if you look at the Chamberlain case, Lindy Chamberlain and the dingo and the baby, one of the things that the court ignored was character evidence, um, eyewitness evidence, ear witness evidence. Did this woman behave as a mother who's just lost her baby? All that evidence was just wiped aside. They didn't even bother to consult Aboriginal people who knew about the behavior of dingoes. All they did was consult the scientists. And she was put into jail on the basis of that. Um, science in our society has an elevated position. I'm not saying science is bad. I'm a scientist. But it's only one way of knowing. And all humans are creatures. And creatures are fallible and flawed. We cannot know anything. Only one person is truth, and that is Jesus Christ. So, so this year, I mean, last year we're teaching uh, Year 12 Biology. We're looking at uh, the immune system. And you look at the way our, science, our society treats um, sexually transmitted disease. What do we do? Well, we, we want vaccination. And we ask men to use condoms. Now, these are a scientific and a technological solution to what is essentially a moral problem, right? There's no, there's no attempt to pursue the reason for the behaviour. But we have a scientific solution. It's a really interesting point you make there about the way that science can become an idolatrous pursuit for a nation. I think Australia feels, and you read some of the literature our government is putting out about the challenges of the 21st century, Australia is looking around at a whole bunch of nations that perhaps were not competitive in a global marketplace 70 years ago, and now they're going, crumbs, um, we're facing some big challenges. We're facing some things that we would never thought, uh, we never thought would be issues for us. Where do we turn? Where do we turn? What, what is the thing that's going to get us out of this spot of bother? What's going to solve our issues? Well, of course, it's science, technology, uh, yeah. and, and engineering and mathematics. And so there's perhaps an elevation, you're saying, of STEM outside of its proper place. Yep, exactly right. Exactly right. And there's no real reason for us then to get down on Australia because although we may, some people may hear that quite harshly, that yes, Australia maybe is pursuing these things in an idolatrous way. What we see when we actually look to God's word in the scriptures is that that's not new. In fact, that is far from new. As long as there have been people and as long as there has been science, um, God's people have actually been pursuing science unfaithfully 
at times. There's a great quote from an American Puritan, a bloke called Cotton Mather. And he said that uh, faithfulness, faithfulness to God, begat or gave birth to prosperity. And then the daughter devoured the mother. So that God's people were faithful to him and he blessed them richly with spiritual and physical blessings. But it was precisely those physical blessings that actually drew God's people away from him. There was an element of of hubris there. Why do you think there is a constant tendency towards idolatry when God gives us this sort of wisdom around science and technology and engineering and so forth? Yeah, so this really is the sort of a sin problem, isn't it? It's the rebellion of human beings. Um, what did Adam and Eve want to do? They wanted to become like God. Uh, they wanted to be masters of their own destiny. Um, Paul in Romans 1 talks about, um, you know, in our foolishness, we serve the creature rather than the creator, uh, which is... <laughs> It's an astounding thing, you know, all of creation. And I, I'm of the view that this computer that I'm on at the moment is creation because it's being made by a creature. If a bird's nest is creation, this computer is a creation. Right? Great point. Yeah, really good point. <laughs> and so all of creation points to God. Um, but what do humans do? We worship the creature. We worship the thing that points to God. We look at the signpost and we worship the signpost. <laughs> uh, so it's a, it's a funny thing, but that's an inherent... This is, this is this idea of nature. You know, it's not that I can go a day or two without sinning. My nature is totally flawed. And I think Jesus... When he, you know, he says, you've kept the law, have you? Or have you looked at a woman lustfully? Well, you've committed adultery. Have you called your brother an idiot? You've committed murder. You see, it's easy to say, I haven't committed adultery. It's not so easy to say, I haven't looked at a woman lustfully. Um, so Jesus sort of blows the law out. Um, and at the same time, he is the only one who keeps the law perfectly for us. So my understanding then, this desire to be God, the desire to run my own life, that's, we're born with that. We're born with that. Um, and the thing to keep in mind is that we can't actually escape that on our own. And therefore, even the best science, the best technology is, is going to fail us. You know, the argument was that when Chernobyl went in, in the USSR, that was the first brick that started to break um, in, in the Russian trust of technology. And when, um, now which of the space shuttles blew up? The aircraft that used to go into space and come back and land. You know what I'm talking about? I do, I do. I, I, I like you, have lost the name. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So when when that happened, when they lost those eight astronauts, uh, when that thing blew up because a, a tile had come off, uh, a heat protective tile, they say that that also was the start of Americans starting to think, well, maybe science is not going to save us. 
Yeah, so science, yeah, that idolatry is there. We can't get away from it. And whatever we worship, if it's not Christ, it just comes apart in our hands. It doesn't save us. It can't save us. And technology is just a classic case of that. While we have technology that we're using right now to have this conversation across the Bass Strait, you know, something that would never have been possible without this sort of technology, um, we actually see that for all the good it's done, there's there's a lot of harm that is done. Part of our study at Calvin Christian School in geography in year 10 is studying human trafficking and human exploitation, um, phenomena which through the use of technology have come become exponentially worse. So there's absolutely no sense to saying that technology will bring us out of some moral deficit that we have because it really, technology, technology just amplifies whatever we have. I mean, if you go all the way back to sharpening sticks with rocks, um, you know, you can hunt food for your family or you can hunt the neighbouring tribe. Uh, it really just amplifies what we have. There's no salvation there. Let's press pause on this discussion for a moment. Over the last year or so, some of you have been asking how you can support the Christian Education Podcast. Well, let me give you three ways, all starting with S. The first S is simply to subscribe. So that's just a setting on your podcast app, actually. And if you do that, that helps me probably more than you think. The second S is to share. So if you really love one of these episodes, why not push it through your social media? You can even send it to an educator directly if you think they'd benefit from it. And the third S is to get in touch. Now, I know that's not an S, but let's not get bogged down in the details here. If there's someone who you think would make a great contribution to this podcast, why not send me their name? Hey, you can even dob in yourself. That's just fine by me. So if you're able to do those three S's to subscribe, share, and get in touch, well, that will help me do the very same thing that we're all trying to do here, to see God's kingdom grow through Christian education. Having said that, let's get back to the discussion. My question to you now is, we've talked about God's word. You've made in your article, you made the case that uh, use of science and technology is actually um, a God-given gift. Our gifts and abilities in this area are God-given. Some of us, when we're, when we're thinking, we're thinking spiritual gifts, we go, okay, yes, wisdom, uh, prophecy, uh, tongues, these sorts of things. We think to the list of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. But you would, it seems, Roger, from your article, you'd make a case for a, a broader understanding of spiritual gifts that includes our natural abilities with technology and science and so on. Would that be accurate? Yeah, it's... <laughs> What I'm not trying to accuse you or anything here, but if you follow a dualistic worldview, um, then there are the sort of Christian things that we do, you know, prophecy, teaching. But Paul talks about hospitality. He talks about teaching. Um, and, you know, back in the Old Testament, you know, those two guys, Beelzebul and somebody else who were, who were gifted by God to be master craftsmen. Um, so to me, you know, it, it comes down to this, that we are made in God's image and he's given each and every one of us human beings gifts. Now, we might call them talents if you're not a Christian, 
But see, the difference between a talent and a gift, a gift is, well, it's a charismata, it's a spiritual gift, and it's given to edify God's people, to build up the community. Um, so if I have a gift for science or an, in, an understanding of how to use my science, well, the proper use of that is to use it to, to restore. So the last 10 years in my teaching, I've sort of come across this idea of teaching science redemptively. I say to my kids at the start of the year, my year 12s, I don't really care if you get 50, a perfect study score for year 12 chemistry. If what that means is you go to Melbourne University and you get the best science degree and then you get the best science job just to propagate your lifestyle, to me, you're not doing God's work. Um, if you're going to do that, make sure you're using those gifts that God has given you to reduce suffering, to bring people into a relationship with God. That's that's the way I look at it. So <laughs> all, all these things are gifts if they're used correctly and in the manner that God wants them to be used. It's really interesting you've included in your article for the Christian Teachers Journal a passage from Exodus 31 um, That's right. where we have Bezalel. And I think the other bloke from memory is Aholiab. Um, my Old Testament is a little scratchier than I would like. But I, I think I remember reading in a commentary. Now, I'm, I've reserved full right to be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure I, I think this is the first time we read about someone being filled with the Spirit of God. Okay. And it, and it's and it's not like they're standing atop the mountain like Moses and delivering a bunch of thou shouts or thou shalt nots strictly moral behavior. It's it's not a ceremonial cleansing. What is it? Well, no. it's craftsmanship. It's it's <laughs> manipulating the matter that God has given us and doing beautiful things, making uh, yep. buildings, architecture, these sorts of things. God is clearly interested in the tactile and the physical and the material. And you're saying, Roger, that was a truth that you were trying really hard to ram home to your chemistry and biology students. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we've talked, and you've touched on this a little bit already, we've talked about how we can approach this good thing, this gift from God, science and engineering, technology, mathematics. We can approach it in a way where it, that all just becomes a rod for our back, right? It, it, it is not useful to us when we approach it idolatrously. But we as Christians, we have God's spirit in us and we don't have to pursue it idolatrously. We can have Christ seated on the throne with everything else subservient to him. We can actually as Christians use STEM subjects appropriately as they were designed to be used. So what would, as set against sort of an idolatrous pursuit of STEM, what would a biblically faithful attitude towards STEM look like? Yeah, so I think as I've been sort of learning over the last 10 years, we want to use STEM to reduce the impact of suffering. So let me, let me, I read, I read about this guy about 15 years ago. Now, he's a Muslim. He's a Nigerian science teacher. His name is Mohammed Ba'aba. 
and he lived in this semi-arid northern Nigeria where you've got these subsistence farmers. And the problem they've got is they've got no electricity, a very harsh, dry climate, and crops deteriorate very quickly. So, like, if you don't sell your tomatoes within three days, you have to throw them out. If you don't sell your eggplants within three days, you've got to throw them out. And Muhammad, he comes up with this idea. Well, it's basically an evaporative cooler. Do you know how evaporative coolers work? Absolutely not. <laughs> so he, he sources these massive pots, maybe maybe nearly 75 centimetres wide, and then puts into them, so they're pots that sort of come up, they're not, they don't narrow, they sort of like U-shaped, and puts into it, inside that pot another pot, and between the two pots puts river sand, and he fills that with water. And the pots are not fired to the point where they're waterproof, so... Um, Water can sort of move through through the pot, and then the wind removes that's in that's heat energy uh, is used to remove the water, and all of a sudden he's got an invention where tomatoes last twenty one days now. Wow! And and eggplants. This is this is the new scientist article I'm reading, and I've I've since Googled the guy up and and seen a. A, a little short video presentation. Uh, eggplants lasted 27 days. Mm. Now, that's wonderful. But I almost got emotional, and I get emotional when I t talk to my year 10s about this. Because in that culture, because they have to be ready to sell, to rush sell produce, so they get some money, the young girls are the ones that have to be on board to sell. And since this guy's invention, two things have happened sociologically. Girls are now going to school. Young girls are going to school. How wonderful is that? My, my, the hairs on my leg are now tingling. <laughs> I, I just think, wow, there's a science teacher using his understanding of science and the ramifications are massive. Further, in that area of Nigeria, they were using aluminium pots. The traditional pot-making disciplines had all but died out. And what does he do? He goes and he establishes pot-making factories, giving work to young men. So this little science demonstration, you know, discovery has had this far-reaching consequences. Now, that's redemptive. That's restorative. That's participating in shalom, you know, in making things whole. <laughs> so that's, that's where I want to go with my kids. And the sorts of stuff we've been doing, we've been looking at solar lights using discarded uh, soft drink bottles. Um, they've been discovered by some guy in Pakistan, um, which is wonderful. Uh, I've been looking at solar distillation, um, ways of, we, 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 we come up with this idea of what happens if you're shipwrecked and how do you, can, is there a way we can 
come up with a solar still to distill salt water, to have enough drinking water. So we, that's another project we did. Um, there's, I don't know if you've heard of um, solar disinfection, using soft drink bottles, putting them on, on black roofs. Because in, in a lot of these countries, the water is contaminated with pathogens. Mm. Put the bottle in the sun, paint the back of it with black, and your two-liter Coke bottle becomes, you know, two hours. The water gets to a temperature of over 70 degrees, which is enough to kill anything. The water's not much to look at, but it's now safe to drink. See what we're doing? We're bringing healing and restoration and hope. Um, <laughs> so you're yeah. saying you've actually taken these notions of a redemptive approach, bringing back yep. a, a, a wholeness, a fullness, a shalom, as you were saying, um, through science. That's impacted the way you're doing your projects with your students at Mount Evelyn Christian School. So those projects you were just talking about, they're things you've done with those students. Is that correct? Correct. And do you think as they're making these um, solar disinfectants or the the seawater um, purification still, can you actually see the gears turning in their minds, Roger, where they're going, wow, I'm using all this stuff, all this stuff I would have learned through the textbook or the worksheet, but I am actually making... By God's grace, I'm making this world a better place. Are you able to see that learning going on within the student? Uh, not in everyone. Not in everyone. Uh, there are These are kids who are in year 9 and year 10 after all. But when that refrain is sung in year 10 and in year 11 and in year 12, you know, by the time you leave year 12... Um, because I continue this approach when I teach immunology, when I teach chemistry. Um, like I've got lots of examples. Um, and, you know, when the teacher gets excited about this kind of stuff, uh, it's infectious. Um, yeah. I think it is John Hattie who does the visible learning um, paradigm and he says that every student comes into each class with a wealth of motivational resources a wealth of motivational resources which looks funny because sometimes if you're looking at a class and you and half a dozen people are drooling out the side of their mouth or something you go well where on earth are these motivational resources John Hattie um, but I think hearing another bloke recently talk about this generation of students coming through schools, he was saying, well, this generation, um, they're not ones necessarily for the, the small acts of discipline, making the bed, having the shower every day, so on and so forth, but they have this ginormous view. They want to change the world. They, they, they have an activist heart, this uh, social commentator was saying. And so in my thinking here, Roger, what you're doing essentially saying we're going to use science to, by God's grace, make this world a better place, to leave it better than we found it. I can really see that approach to science capturing those huge motivational resources that every student is bringing into the classroom. Good. <laughs> okay, just let me say one thing. I was taken by the fact that this guy, Mohammed. He's a Muslim, right? And uh, one of the things I learned through my 
nice studies is that Christians don't have a monopoly on truth, right? Muslims are made in God's image, right? Um, I remember Stuart Fowler saying that we're never as good as we could be because uh, the devil doesn't allow that. And then we're never as bad as we could be because God's grace restrains us. Now, if you're in Christ, well, you know, it restrains you even more. If you're not in Christ, it's still there. It still restrains evil. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm just excited that, you know, a non-believer um, can discover things about God's creation that have wonderful ramifications. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Roger Fernando, it has been an absolute treat to talk to you today on the Christian Education Podcast. Thank you so much uh, for all your service to the Lord Jesus Christ through Christian Education over the years. And we pray for God's richest blessings for you in the next stage of your life. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.